Hello and welcome to The Talking Law, the podcast where you can hear barristers, judges, solicitors, managing partners and those working in the law talk about their careers and lives in law. I'm Dr Sally Penny MBE, I'm a barrister practising from Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester and I'm also the founder of Women in the Law UK. I'm delighted to be interviewing on this episode the Right Honourable Victoria Prentice, who has served as the Attorney General for England and Wales since 2022. She is also a Government Minister and the MP, Member of Parliament, for Banbury, near Oxford. The Attorney General is a Chief Legal Advisor to the Government, which means Victoria cannot sadly comment on the cases that she works on, for example, the Rwanda Asylum Bill. So, in this episode, we discussed her day-to-day role and what that entails. You'll also hear about how the crossover in Victoria's career between law and politics came about. I interviewed Victoria in the stunning Houses of Parliament, and she explained to me a career in law wasn't the obvious route for her. So, I don't have any lawyers in the family, My first love was, and to a certain extent remains, English literature. I really love reading. And for my first degree at university, I read English literature with some medieval languages thrown in. And increasingly, I thought about an academic career, but increasingly as as I went on with my studies, I realised that I liked practical things and I liked helping people with their problems and I realised that law would be an outlet for both doing something that was quite challenging academically with very very practical solutions to problems so it seemed to fit the bill for me I didn't know all that much about it if I was honest I had romantic notions about criminal (laughs) defence and read lots of books about that. But that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people solve their specific problems. Yes, interesting. And given you didn't know anybody in law, you know, mum or dad or whatever, like I didn't know anybody, how did you navigate the training and it then progressing? Because you've been a government lawyer all your life. Nearly all the way through. So I... I realised that I hadn't done law for my first degree and I found out that if you went to a few universities, you could do a full law degree in two years. And that, I think I knew even then that I would be interested in politics and international law. I think I knew that 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 would always excite me. Mm. And I was slightly worried that in the short conversion courses that you wouldn't be able to go in depth into those subjects. So I thought, oh, well, I can just do a full law degree. I'll do it a bit faster because I've already done a degree and I know what I'm doing at university. So um, I applied to Downing College, Cambridge, which is a great law college. They were kind enough to give me a scholarship, so it didn't cost any more to do an extra year. And I was tutored by the very great John Hopkins in constitutional law and various very great people, including Christopher Greenwood, in international law. And I realised very quickly on in my law degree that these were really areas of interest for me. Yes, interesting. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to tell us what your average day looks like as the Attorney General. But for most people, and certainly I've been at the bar for 23 years, my experience of the Attorney General has been when there's a reference where I've been prosecuting and there's a lenient sentence of what one might consider to be unduly lenient 
sentence. So then you review that sentence and then it goes off to the attorney general's office. And usually you don't see it again because it goes to Treasury Council, who are based in London. And then the case goes forward and occasionally you, the original lawyer, might be led by a junior counsel. So that's kind of often uh, people's experience of the attorney general those of us who are at the bar. But what does your average day look like? So I'm very much the in-house lawyer for the government. So I behave as any in-house lawyer does. I get asked questions, specific legal questions, to do with legislation and also to do with litigation that the government's involved in. I attend every cabinet meeting. I try not to talk unless there's a legal issue. And when there is a legal issue, I put up my hand and I expect to be listened to, frankly. (laughs) It's very much like being a lawyer on a company board or in any form of in-house role where you are there exclusively to give legal advice to that organisation. It's a little bit of compliance thrown in too, which is fine. Um, And during the course of my days, I attend Cabinet. I attend lots of other meetings individually with ministers who are working through a new policy area or a particularly problematic piece of litigation. Yes. I attend meetings of groups of ministers who might want to test new ideas against uh, a lawyer. Yes. I uh, sit in the chamber and occasionally speak or Mm. answer questions on on legal matters. Like all lawyers, you'll understand this, Mm. I can't speak about my cases and I'm not even really meant to speak about whether I'm advising in a case. You might think it's often very obvious that the Mm. attorney's involved in high profile cases, but I'm not really supposed to even give that away because my client confidentiality to the government is very strong. Well, that that gets rid of about 10 questions that I was And, and, and there's lots of other things. I mean, there's an international role. I meet other AGs from yes. around the world and justice ministers. We have a um, quite a lot of work, sadly, at the moment, looking at war crimes in Ukraine, Ukraine. and the invasion there. Yes, yes. And th- there's, a, there's a sort of wider uh, being a leader of the bar role and making sure that we, you know, as as leaders of the bar within within government, make sure that the the two sides yeah. of that relationship yeah. work well together. Well together. I want to ask you about politics. Now, this is not a political podcast. I think I've only had two politicians, if I can say that. David Lammy is about the the uh, other other person, and he's a lawyer, uh, and he's a lawyer. So that's the only reason he was invited on, <laughs> uh, not to talk about politics in any shape or form. But I, I wanted to ask you about making the crossover because you're also um, the member of parliament for Banbury Oxford, and so the cross the crossover, if you like, from law to politics, or in addition to. Uh, law and politics. How did that come about? When did you think, I want to go further? Well, it was Um, particularly difficult because I was a civil servant lawyer. So I'd done 17 years in the Treasury Solicitors Department doing litigation. I was very much enjoying being a civil service lawyer. I'd gone um, from being a very junior lawyer to a very senior lawyer in charge of a very large litigation team. Team, yeah. And doing, frankly, the most exciting cases there were to do. And I was able during that time to job share some of it. I did have children, Mm. but increasingly both myself and my job share found that we were using our days when we weren't working to run quite substantial charities. Yes, She ran um, 
on a volunteer basis maternity services for London and and was very involved in that. I was very involved in setting up and ultimately chairing the fund at our children's hospital in Oxfordshire and also various other local campaigns to Banbury. And it seemed to me that I was getting very, very involved in community life and I loved that. Mm. And our old MP retired and I'd always said, oh, I couldn't even think about politics until my youngest daughter started secondary school yes. and he retired on the day my youngest daughter started secondary school. And <laughs> that was this all, timely. <laughs> it, this all seemed, I have no idea if you knew, this all seemed to sort of fall into place. I'm, I was born in Banbury. I love Banbury. It's a very important part of me. Yes. And I just thought, oh, I could represent my community. It was also at the same time that David Cameron, recently back as Foreign Secretary, was very much looking for women in politics. And he'd said that quite openly. There was clearly a route in for some punchy women. And I thought, oh, there aren't really any excuses left. Fantastic. And you got, you know, you got in and you progressed brilliantly. Uh, And just on the point about women, your department, uh, you know, I set up an organisation called Women in the Law UK. It's about, you know, empowering and inspiring, supporting and connecting women, in addition to my day job. And I noticed looking at your department, you've got a considerable amount of women. Oh, yeah. But actually in in leadership roles, which is what I'm really interested in. So the government legal service, in which I work for almost all of my career, is brilliant at diversity generally, actually, if I'm honest. Mm. And that's one of the things I really love about it. It very much takes you at face value. Yes. If you do the work and you're enthusiastic about doing the work for government, you're passionate to do a good job and to play by the rules and whichever part of government excites you, then mm. you, you, you can do be a litigator, you can be an advisory lawyer, you can, you can do a huge range of jobs within it. It's very much a system where you can be yourself at mm. the same time. Mm. So that means we have women, we promote women, we have people of all ethnicities, we have... People who choose to work part-time because they're looking after children, but we also have people who work part-time because they're doing academic degrees or yes. they're looking after older people. Or We, we don't ask questions. Yes. We try to be kind and caring, and mm. we might well ask questions on that basis. But I'm really impressed by the way that we are genuinely enthusiastic about different choices. Absolutely. And, uh, and the reason I'm interested is that it means that actually it's better for the retention and attrition of women. Oh, it's much better because uh, you're working with a bunch of people who are motivated by a little bit more than money. Exactly. And they're passionate about public service and the work that they do. And they're a really diverse and enthusiastic group of people. And they're great and they wouldn't leave because, uh, you know, in the private sector, when things don't quite meet one's requirements, it means we lose quite talented people. So it provides another avenue, not just for women. It, but I mean, I would, don't want to paint too rosy a picture. I was very much, well, I was the first person to work part time in litigation. I was just coming to that. Legal <laughs> service. So this is real. I mean, you know, I know I'm feeling like an old lady now, but this is relatively new. Yes. Um, but it has genuinely been enthusiastically embraced. And that means we have a bunch of people now running the organisation who are quite different from how it would have been 20 years ago. 20 years ago, yes. Um, this year, uh, I met you, albeit briefly, 
at LinkedIn, where mm. you gave um, the lead speech. Um, and uh, Lincoln's in, it was the Inns of Court um, Women's Alliance. I remember it was an amazing occasion. It is so rare that you look out at an audience and you see a huge, well, it was a garden full, wasn't yes, it? Yeah. It wasn't even a room. There were, there were hundreds of very clever, very capable women barristers wearing black. Yes, and yes, I was there. I, I, was, think, I was one of them. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that many women barristers before. And I think um, many of us there actually found it quite an affirming yes. experience. Yes. The other thing I've done this year that was, uh, that you could hear the glass ceiling shattering, was Sue Carr's swearing in as Absolutely. Lady Chief. Absolutely. And that again... Um, was exciting. Yes, yeah. And it's, it is an exciting time, isn't yeah. it, I think. Um, so at that garden party, though, I was really quite impressed with how many women of colour, you know, black and ethnic yeah. minority women there were. Uh, and yet those who are, you know, 10 years less cool than me, for example, thought there wasn't enough. And so it's quite interesting to think what where we think there's change. Yeah. Actually, those who are younger, I don't want to call them millennials because they weren't quite, often talk about the pace of change. Do you yeah. think we're now in a momentum? Well, I hope we are. I mean, definitely the government legal service has, has got some things right. And I met some fabulous Crown prosecutors yesterday. Again, a very diverse group of people. Yes. Really impressive senior women, senior people from all different communities. And that's really adding to the quality of the work that they do and the quality of the advice that they give. So, yeah, there are some bits that are absolutely going very well. I think we all have to accept that the senior judiciary is not where we would want it to be yet. Yes, I'm afraid And that there is quite a lot of work to do. Yes. And I think we can talk frankly about the fact that women often start at the bar, in at the independent bar, but then there is still quite significant attrition. And those first applications for judicial posts are often the time when you're really up to your neck in small children. Yeah. And it's really, really hard work. Yeah. And we, we've just got to talk frankly about the problems in order to find solutions for them. Absolutely. But having said that, they're still in the High Court and the Court of Appeal. No full time black women judges. Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, of course, we're delighted because in the Supreme Court, um, we've got another woman, yes. uh, you know, Lady Justice Ingrid Simler. So, so I, I like to think about optimism yeah. uh, at the progression. But you're absolutely right about being realistic uh, yeah. about the progress that's, that's being made. But we, we are getting there. And our profession, we're very fortunate, is a meritocracy. And bright people should join and they will get on. Mm. And we will do everything we can to make sure they do. Yes, yeah, well, you're right. But of course, in line though, they do need to see role models yeah, going, going forward. Um, there. Um, can I ask you about, I usually ask, what's your favourite case? Or, you know, a case that's been most impactful to you, but I don't think you can name any. So uh, I want to ask you about your favourite legal character. Oh, um, uh, less the, controversial. <laughs> yeah, cases are tricky for me because obviously I signed the Official the Secrets Official Act Secrets. when I joined in the Government Legal Service in 1997. That was a long time ago. I know, I, I think I was at university. <laughs> I did litigation um, 
all the way through. So it's, and obviously colleagues will have seen me in court. So it's fairly obvious that I was involved in the most high profile litigation that the government was conducting over that time. And it was really exciting. And I loved every minute. In terms of legal characters, it's got to be Rumpole. He's deaf. He might even be actually, to answer your first question, what (laughs) got me into law in the first place. Rumpole on telly at that point. I remember those programmes really vividly. I thought he was great. And then now when I've read the Rumpole books, which I redo every so often, I do wonder if I'm becoming one of those caricatures who bangs on about my, you know, my one big case and when I was doing this alone without a leader and so on. And, and I, I completely get that older barristers do do that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But that's answered two questions in one, actually, Rumpole, which I also love. What about well-being? You've got a family, I've got a family, I have a day job, you know, I prosecute and defend, all the things that come to us at the bar. In addition to that, you're a politician, you know, and managing small children and sitting on a variety of boards. So I wonder, you know, you've got a big job, in short. What do you do to look after your physical health and mental health, I suppose, but just so your wellness? Um, because, you know, the Bar Council's been big at talking about well-being, which we are at least talking about. But the reality is it's a tough, it's a tough job. You know, I don't go to bed most nights before too. Uh, and so I just wonder in your role, which is like 10 times that. I, I'm the other end of do? the spectrum. I, I make sure I'm up for farming today. Right. So I start work really early, which suits me and the way I like to function. It's easier now the girls have grown up yes. and they've broadly left home now we had a slight well it, uh, it was lovely we had a ukrainian to live with us for the last 20 months so that wow almost been like having another daughter yeah um, we love her very much she's uh slightly moved out she's working in oxford in a week but she was very keen on keeping her bedroom and i was very pleased that the first weekend she returned home with two of the most enormous bags of washing I have ever seen in my life. So I think there's leaving home and there's sort of leaving (laughs) home like my children too. Um, So that's been an unexpected blessing, if you like, when we thought our girls were nearly gone, suddenly we we got another one. one. (laughs) Um, My husband is, is a judge. So we talk about law a lot, yeah. which may not sound <laughs> exciting to the rest of the world, but it suits us. And we very much like living in the countryside mm. as well. I know we're often in London in a week, but we both really value just being outside at weekends. Mm. We've always had a lot of animals and that's been a big part of my children's upbringing. So that means we sort of have to go and deal with them and, and sort out where we live yes yeah and so you can actually sort of have escapism if you like yes it is a bit like that it's quite hard work as well yeah um so my family farm and I've always been quite involved in the family farm at weekends yes and I still am so yes the sort of downtime is is almost work but it's at least it's different yes absolutely now I knew that about your family so I'm going to ask you a question about the archers uh, which I've listened to. I'm a huge artist. Are you a fan. huge artist? Fan. A huge I used fan. to be. What I've, have you stopped? Well, it's just I'm so busy, but I understand that that the greatest archer's legal story has come to a, yes. a conclusion. Can I, I put it that way? Yes, yes. Uh, and my question was really about... I do have a tea tile over there with Free the Blossom Hill 1 on it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I need to get a photo of that before we leave uh, of us. But what the archers was very good at, just very quickly, was coercive behaviour. Yeah, exactly. And well, that is the greatest archers legal story. Exactly. But, but actually getting the public yeah, engaged with legislation. You know, I'm very keen for legislation, not just to be some airy fairy mystical thing for for members of the public to understand well Sally, this drafted. is my this is my favorite thing to talk about the, the archers as as a as a good vehicle for change yes um, yes yeah. no absolutely that was actually a really important storyline and it does show that uh, used properly soap operas can be a really good way of educating the public about what we do it's really hard to talk about the importance of law Mm. it sounds really dry to talk about the rule of law and the importance of different constitutional conventions and i know we wear funny clothes and we use funny language in court and that can be very off-putting for the public Mm. but as soon as they get a real soap opera story that engages them and they understand why fairness matters justice matters juries matter and so on then it really brings it to life and actually genuinely i do think that um programs like that have a real role in public legal education absolutely and and have and have had yeah um that. and we freed the blossom hill one so there we are absolutely absolutely now i've got about two questions left mainly because you've got to go the first one is can you explain, really, what's the difference between your role and the justice minister? Because people get confused. I know, but I want to hear it from Okay, it's words. quite a big difference. Yes. Um, so the justice minister has a big department to run. He is responsible for the prison service, which mm. is an enormous job, and uh, for the court services and for various other important, uh, you know, different bits of the system which need to work properly. Yes. Um, I don't do that. I am the lawyer doing law. And I must say it suits me very well. Um, So I have a small department. I also have a supervisory function over the CPS and the serious fraud office. But I don't actually run them. I just ask the right questions and try and ensure that they're being run properly. And Mm. I do. um, I'm accountable for them in Parliament and to other parts of government. But that's different from actually running something. Yeah. Yes. Um, so most of what I do is law. Most of what the Lord Chancellor does, though he has important functions like upholding the rule of law and mm. working with the judiciary, but most of what he does is running things and making sure the department functions well. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I notice you've been on a bit of a road tour Exciting and interesting and relevant. Don't laugh at me. That's what you're trying to do too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But I, I mean, I, I, I missed it. But people don't necessarily know this that there are government legal departments in Manchester. Yeah, and Leeds. this is really important because everybody should come and work for us because we do the best law. Just saying. Um, but um, we in GLD, so the government legal department, really strongly feel that not all the best lawyers are in London. Here, here. There are really good lawyers in other parts of the country and we want to make sure that we harness the talent of people who we wouldn't necessarily have thought about yes. employing um, before we had these new offices. So there's a very well-established office in Bristol. There's a, a great one in Leeds, a really fabulous building in a very exciting legal district. Yes. Really exciting new office in Manchester that I opened a couple of months ago now. Mm. Increasingly, we're growing that that talent pool there 
We are very much recruiting in the government legal service. I know from personal experience that it's a fabulous career with a really good group of people. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Fantastic. Now, my last question uh, is this. I know I said two questions in time, but I'll have to squeeze in one. Is what's next? I feel like, you know, uh, you're at the pinnacle of your career. Uh, and as I look at the cabinet, there aren't very many women, but that's an observation by me. On behalf of women in the law at the UK, I suppose. But what's next, Prime Minister? Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> no, no. I think attorney is a very good fit yeah. for me. I love it. I love doing law. I love advising the government on law. It's all I've ever done, really, um, since I left the independent bar when I was very, very junior. And definitely what excites me is making sure that the rule of law is real, both within government and within the country as a whole. I have no idea what I'll do next and or when next will come. Yes. So I'll just, I'm sure I'll always be busy. My dad is still working hard and he's nearly 81. So, wow. I, and my granny, who, who only died recently, I think worked till, till the end. She was asking <laughs> for foreign language uh, audio tapes because she couldn't read books in foreign languages anymore. And I really want to be like that. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Well, Attorney General, thank you so much for being part of this great interview with me and Talking Law. I'm thrilled that you came on the podcast. Thanks, Sally, it was fun. Thanks to the Attorney General, the Right Honourable Victoria Prentice, for telling me all about her career and life in the law in this interview. Let me tell you about some upcoming Women in the Law UK events. Do join us on the 7th of February at 5pm on Zoom for a webinar called Judicial Roles, Part-Time Judicial Roles. On the 7th of March, our annual dinner will be taking place celebrating International Women's Day at 7pm in Manchester. Tickets are all available on Eventbrite. There is also an International Women's Day conference the following day on the 8th of March, 10 to 4pm at Irwin Mitchell, with a great line of speakers and subjects with a theme covering imposter syndrome. Finally, our annual conference will be held on the 22nd and November. There are also a variety of other monthly events, including a book club, which are held virtually. Do visit www.womeninthelawuk.com in order to find out what's coming up. And finally, don't miss my next book in the series, Book 6, Talking Law and Leadership, which should be out in the new year. If you would like to support the Talking Law podcast, then there are many ways. Please do get in touch. You can also follow me on Twitter at SallyPenny1 and on Instagram SJSallyPenny and on LinkedIn SallyPennyMBE or simply follow Women in the Law UK on LinkedIn. There are plenty of other episodes of Talking Law for you to listen to with guests including Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, The Secret Barrister, Lord David Panic KC, and so much more. Thank you so much to our production team at Purposeful Podcasts. I'm Sally Penny MBE. Bye for now.